take one. Welcome to Emancipated. Was it fast? Let me do one more. Welcome to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Uncle Bradley Center. Hello from Marta Valier. In this episode, uh, we talk to Guillermo Marquez, historian at the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center, about uh, Richard Cross' work as a photographer in Colombia in the 70s, where he traveled to document, together with anthropologist Nina Friedman, the Afro-descendant community of uh, San Basilio de Palenque. These photos have now been digitized by the Bradley Center team and uh, anyone can look at them by just visiting the center's website. So why did Richard Cross go to Colombia in the first place? Richard Cross had been working in various Midwestern newspapers as a freelancer, but also as, you know, he had a job at the Daily Globe in Worthington, Minnesota. But after a while, and this is a pattern that you see throughout Richard's life, it's that After a while, he begins to feel that his work needs more importance or it needs more meaning. He was very conscious of the fact that he was taking an image from someone or from something. So Richard Cross started to feel, um, even as a young reporter, that his worth lacked importance. So the editor at the Daily Globe in Worthington, Minnesota, he suggested that he join the Peace Corps. Uh, maybe he could get more out of that. You know, the Peace Corps is a program that historically has allowed people from the United States to travel to different countries and assist with different things, national projects or local projects and things like that. So he joined the Peace Corps and then he was assigned to work in Colombia. So that's how he landed in Colombia. While there, he was working as a consultant for three Uh, government agencies in Colombia. One of them was Inderena, the agency that manages natural resources in Colombia. Um, there was also the Coffee Growers Association. And he was also uh, working for, I believe it was the Institute of Culture, where he was photographing archaeological remains. And the uh, work he did for Inderena was uh, photographing soil erosion in Colombia. In fact, that last one, the, the goal was to uh, send those photographs to a group of scientists in the Netherlands. Unfortunately, Colombia could not afford for the scientists to come to Colombia, but the photographs are going to be sent to them so that they could analyze and, and re make recommendations based on that. So Richard Cross got involved in that. And aside from that, part of his consulting, he was providing technical uh, assistance. He was teaching writing. He was doing all sorts of things with local um, organizations in Colombia. So um, his work was multifaceted, I guess. And, and really that's how he landed in Colombia was through the Peace Corps. What I don't know is how he met Nina Friedman, But it probably was around those circles that he was moving in that he came across important work that she was doing herself for the Colombian Institute of Anthropology. Who was Nina Friedman and what was she working on? Nina Friedman uh, was an anthro a Colombian anthropologist who had actually done um, some work in the United States. She had actually taught at one or two universities in the United States. Um, and she was working for the Colombian Institute of Anthropology at the time that she was assigned Uh, to work on this project, which was essentially to map out the development of the communities, specifically the Afro-descendant communities, uh, along what, what they call Colombia's literal, Atlantic literal, which is essentially the Atlantic coast um, or the area near the Atlantic coast. And the goal was to study the historical and contemporary development of San Basilio de Palenque, which was the descendants of one of the many Maroon communities that existed throughout the Americas. So uh, the goal was to map out not only their very unique development, but also 
the character of that development in the face of, of events happening throughout the colonial era, but also contemporary Colombian culture right up to the 1970s. How was her work unique? Her work is very... Uh, at the time, even now, it's it's cutting edge because she embarked on a project that studied groups of populations that had been essentially ignored since the colonial era. Ignored in the sense of services and attention and what is due to them as citizens of Colombia, right? Uh, they had been essentially a marginalized community. And of course, the historiography, the academic work reflected that. Afro-descendant people in Colombia, specifically residents of what used to be the Palenques, those are communities that have been historically uh, whitewashed, put to the side, all but erased from mainstream Colombian society. So her goal was to dismantle some of those stereotypes, you know, these negative stereotypes that have been essentially present since the colonial era. Uh, about people of African descent, but also to present the information of the study in a narrative that was f both flexible and accessible to a much broader audience, because the goal was also to reach the palenqueros themselves. As if I do recall, uh, there, there's one of the uh, community authorities, I guess, in San Basilio de Palenque, who, uh, when they presented the project to the community, he said something along the lines of, Nina has brought us a book, and it's very well written and very well organized. So as we can see, you know, the, the project was done with a lot of care and the project was well received by the subjects of the study themselves. How long did it take for Richa Cross and Nina Friedman to complete this project? I would say it took them a few years because it, I think the project began in 1976 and we know that the photographs went up to 1978. So they were there for a few years, but also once the project was completed, then they had to go through the process of curating the photographs and And once the editors accepted the book, you know, which they did in 1980, you know, the, that whole process took some time. But we know that Richard and Nina and the crew were in San Basilio de Palenque with San Basilio's residents for about two years, you know, photographing essentially daily life. Um, we do know that at the beginning, uh, Richard was not allowed to take photographs unless he was with Nina. You know, something that quickly changed when they knew exactly the kind of person Richard Cross was. You know, he was actually widely accepted in the community. He was very well loved because of the kind of person he was. You know, they I think they quickly learned that Richard was, you know, not there to steal their image, but to to take the image they wanted. But Richard, unfortunately, didn't didn't uh, get to see the end of that project. Uh, once the, the photograph section was was finished, uh, Richard embarked on his next project. And unfortunately, he didn't get to see the completion of the project. How did Richard Cross and Nina Friedman build the trust with the community of uh, San Basilio de Palenque? I think the, one of the expressed goals of the study, and I think this goes along with other anthropological studies of its kind, is to reach out to the community's leadership. And it was very important for them to get the acceptance or at least the clearance of these elders because historically speaking, a community like San Basilio de Palenque is a community that's used to having people either not listen to them or listen to them and derive something else from their words. So I think that there was a certain amount of trust that needed to be gathered. And, and you know, people like Don Fermín Herrera, who is probably at the time the biggest authority figure in the community, his acceptance and his essentially blessing for this project was paramount. It was of the utmost importance. You are listening to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center. 
So what are these palenques? Uh, these palenques, they're known by different names throughout the Americas. Uh, it really does kind of depend where you are. They're called palenques also in Colombia. They're called palenques in Mexico. They're called palenques in Cuba. But, you know, in Brazil, for example, they're called quilombos. These are all European-derived names. But at the same time, you know, these palenques are essentially communities formed by runaway enslaved Africans or Afro-descendants who, as a form of resistance, they ran away. Uh, ran away to freedom and to the freedom of the Maria Mountains, uh, which are near Cartagena de Indias. Essentially, these palenques are communities, fortified communities that at first were very rudimentary, basically camps, mostly men uh, at the very beginning and, and very precarious settlements, you know, settlements that you could build and take down very quickly in case you needed to relocate. Um, but these palenques were built in the safety of the Maria Mountains because the Maria Mountains were very densely forested, a very big location. You know, it's very easy to get lost. And it's full of natural raw material from which you can build a fortification, you can build homes, you can build bedding, you can gather food and other supplies from the environment, you can make weapons, um, and you can use the surrounding environment to sort of protect yourself. And that's one of the main reasons why they chose these locations, because of the defensive possibilities. Once they ran away from a plantation or a mine or, or someone's house, these uh, formerly enslaved Africans who freed themselves, you know, their main goal was survival, physical survival. So running into the Maria Mountains provided them that safety. You know, not only were they hiding, but they could also survive from the nature in the area. So these palenques first started as very small camps and eventually developed to much larger sort of settlements when they were able to grow their numbers, uh, whether they grew their numbers from the continuous escapes, which we know happened throughout the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and over time, they were able to build moderately large communities. You know, it, it went from one palenque to 20 by the 1600s. So uh, in less than 100 years, you see the growth of these palenques. So it's evident that this was something that was very popular amongst enslaved Africans. It afforded them the opportunity to escape the yoke of slavery. You know, even though they lived in these very rudimentary camps, you know, it was freedom. And eventually these camps became palenques, full-fledged palenques, which eventually became villages once their existence was accepted by by colonial authorities. And what are the historical sources you found studying these palenques? We go back to colonial sources, you know, sources from the 1500s, sources from the 16th and 1700s that leave us some sort of trace of what was happening. Unfortunately, these palenqueros were largely, you know, though I'm I'm sure there were probably some residents who maybe had some knowledge of reading and writing and things like that. But this is largely an oral community, an oral culture, you know, and a culture that passed on stories orally. So unfortunately, we have to go back to, to the sources that are there. And a lot of those are left behind by colonial authorities who were writing reports, uh, letters to the king, military orders, paperwork that showed how much was spent on equipping a, a small military force to go and try to essentially re-enslave these Africans or Afro-descendants. And so the sources that we look at are heavily Spanish. The documentary source, unfortunately, doesn't leave a lot behind for a population that was largely illiterate, probably unable to speak a lot of Spanish or Portuguese or something like that, or maybe even Dutch. Um, but these are populations who essentially built their own language, and it's enshrined in the language of palenqueros. So a lot of these oral histories exist 
passed down from generation to generation, either in Spanish or in Palenquero itself. But the vast majority, and admittedly so, the vast majority of documents that exist, physical documents, are colonial documents, you know, created by Spanish colonial authorities. And how was it for you to study this photograph? You know, I'll admit, at first, I felt very out of my element. You know, I, I have training as a historian. So to look at photographs from an anthropological point of view, you know, there, there was a fair amount of background reading I had to do. So, But um, I see a community who doesn't seem to have any kind of animosity. You know, they're proud descendants of a people who fought for their freedom, proud descendants of essentially a new culture, a new language, a new culture, new customs, new religious practices, a new cosmic viewpoint you know they're proud descendants of that and, and you could that's palpable throughout the images these are people who are happy you know they they were going to live their life on their terms and that's what it looks like i see an incredible environmental beauty but what you also see is a population of people who are sort of basking in their freedom you know aside from all the other things that are happening things that are out of their control you know whereas afro-descendant people in colombia are still very much marginalized are still very much discriminated just like everywhere else in latin america so and here you see a space a space that they consider safe it's their home it's theirs and i'm not saying that they're happy with what they have but i'm saying that they're happy and you can see that you know as they as they practice their their wedding rituals as they herd the cattle in the mountains as they um, harvest their, you know, the, the, the fruits and, and vegetables that they plant in their, in their areas, as they take care of their cows, as they build their, their sort of corrals and homes and, and everything else, you know, it's, it's, that's really the thing that I see when I see these images. is by the Afro-Colombian hip-hop group Combilesami, and it's called Macuagro. 
So what is the cuagro for the people of San Basilio de Palenque? So the cuagro, it's the, I guess, the basic unit of social organization in San Basilio de Palenque, one that is very much grounded in African culture. It's essentially a set of dividing people, not by caste, like the Spanish, but sort of by family position. So at the center, you had the leadership. So you had the leader and his family or group of families. And then around him, you had sort of by levels, the captains around the leadership who were in charge of getting like immediate things done and sort of a ladder of responsibilities, right? So the cuadro is a very important sort of social divider or, or social positioning system because it's what they had at the time. It sort of places you in your position in society. It also decides from where you can look for suitable partners for marriage. Um, it also decides who you're going to sort of play with and train with. Not that you can't play with others, but um, as you get older, these cuadros begin to have more meaning because you transition from stages of life within that cuadro. When you get married, you're going to get married with a person from your cuadro. Um, when you work, your, you know, your daily assignments as part of your, your daily routine um, is within your cuadro. Uh, your family belongs to a cuadro that, you know, is much like other families who belong to other cuadros and they're sort of um, stationed hierarchically based on these sort of like ancestral degrees of leadership. Something completely different now. There are a lot of uh, photographs of boys and girls of different ages that are boxing in the images from San Basilio de Palenque. So when was boxing introduced? Honestly, no, exactly. And I can check on that. But I don't honestly know when the boxing was introduced. But it was probably early on that some form of martial art was introduced. And it's very similar to other communities in the Americas who develop fighting systems or fighting traditions uh, while enslaved or after escaping. You know, you have uh, the one that comes to mind is capoeira in Brazil, um, which is a dance that beneath it hides a martial art um, because they weren't allowed to do these things because that was considered subversive. So in this sense, the martial arts tradition was probably introduced early on, um, and it was introduced as a survival mechanism. Um, everybody learned how to fight, including the girls. And the, the idea was that everyone fights, you know, boys, girls, men, women, young, old. At some point, if we have to, you have to learn how to fight in case you have to. <laughs> so that martial arts tradition sort of created this, this world where Aside from having, eventually boxing sort of lost its importance in the sense of personal defense, especially after the abolition of slavery in the 19th century. But boxing remained sort of a rite of passage type of practice where boys and girls engaged in boxing practice and boxing matches. Eventually, the fighting stayed and it created world champion boxers like Kid Pambele and I forget the other guy's name. But um, eventually two world champions for Colombia came out of Palenque. And so this martial art, you know, boxing, this martial art tradition eventually evolved into some like a cultural activity that everybody engages in. Um, and there are a lot of photographs that sort of attest to that. If it's not for the martial arts self-defense component, now it's more of a cultural component. You know, boxing, martial arts, self-defense is is essentially a time-honored tradition, and that really dates back to the reality that they lived in. 
How was uh, Nina and Richard's work uh, received when it was published in the book uh, Magombe? The book, actually, it was very popular in Palenque. It was very well received in Colombia, at least in academic circles. But beyond that, it was actually well received in Africa. Uh, Nina Friedman mentions in Mangombe that she took it to Africa when she went to a, it was a conference that they were doing to you know, bring together scholars of the African diaspora. And when she showed that book to, especially the pictures, to uh, a lot of the scholars in the air, one of them actually remarked, she looks like my cousin. So the book itself was very well received in Africa because for a lot of people, it symbolized that connection that Africans in Africa have to the Africans in the Americas. And at that point, you know, a second edition was, you know, necessary, I guess, to sort of keep the book going. And it's not translated in English, right? It's only no. in Spanish. Mm -hmm. The book is only in Spanish, but it would not, it'd be nice to see it in, in, in a different language so that it's, it's available to a much broader Afro-descendant population. Maybe Afro-descendants who don't speak Spanish, right? Maybe they speak Dutch, maybe they speak English, maybe they speak French, uh, you know, Portuguese, whatever the, the reality may be. I think the fact that it exists in Spanish makes it available to, to you know, Spanish speakers, which are a lot. Um, but it would not, it'd be nice to see it in, in, in a different language so that it's, it's available to a much broader Afro-descendant population. Thanks to Guillermo Marquez for this conversation and thanks to Combilés and me for the music. This episode was produced by Marta Valier. Just listen to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center at California State University, Northridge. Please stay tuned for our next episode.